0: So, I look at my father as a political prisoner rather than somebody who's in jail because they broke the law. My father's in jail because his ideas represent a threat to the government breaking the law. <laughs>
1: To the Lions of Liberty podcast, here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Hey friends, welcome back to my show, the Lions of Liberty podcast, episode number 71. Before I get to today's guest, I want to take a second to let you know about Health Excellence Select, an amazing alternative to Obamacare, which utilizes health sharing to cover your medical costs. Your fees go directly to pay the medical bills of others, not to some massive crony insurance company. To learn more, head to lionsofliberty.com slash health. My guest today is the CEO and Chief Global Strategist of Euro-Pacific Capital, as well as the founder and chairman of Shift Gold. He is the author of several books, including Crash Proof, How to Profit from the Coming Economic Collapse, How an Economy Grows and Why It Crashes, and The Real Crash, America's Coming Bankruptcy. He served as an economic advisor to the 2008 Ron Paul presidential campaign, and he's also the host of The Peter Schiff Show. Peter Schiff, welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast.
0: Oh, thanks for welcoming me to the Lions of Liberty podcast. <laughs>
1: Certainly glad to have you here, Peter. And I've been a big fan of yours for some time. And you know, I always start my show by asking my guests just how they came into their current beliefs. So you can just start by telling us what first led you down this path, where you view the economy in such a different way than you know mainstream academia and the mainstream media.
0: Well, it's basically my dad. I mean, my father uh, was you know schooled in Austrian economics, or at least he studied it on his own. He didn't learn it in any formal way. But he was very much an economist, even though he was an insurance by profession. But he was, you know, amateur economist. And he eventually wrote a book that was very influential for me, which is called The Biggest Con, which is a book that he wrote that came out in the early 1970s. And by the way, you know, I still sell copies of that book for people who want to read it. It's a fantastic book. I still think it's one of the best books on economics written. You know, The Biggest Con, How the Government is Fleecing You. So, you know, we have it on our bookstore Benny wants to go to Shift Books or Shift Radio Bookstore. I have a limited number of copies left. I mean, I, I think I have fewer than 100 left. Wow. It's first come, first serve. I think we've sold about 1,000 copies. I found them in a, in a storage bin in a warehouse.
1: These are just your personal copies that you have left. They're, they're yeah. no longer being published.
0: No, it's been out of publication for years. Uh, and these books are brand new. They've been in a box for 20 years or whatever. They were published, I think, in 1999, 2000 as a reprint in paperback. But the original came out, I think, in 73 or 74. But, you know, they were selling the book, you know, for $150, $200 on Amazon and eBay. But now I've got these copies that I got. I actually autographed them, too, so you can get it. But it's a great book that my dad wrote. And if you want to know, you know, where my, you know, economic thinking comes from, I mean, it's it's from my dad. And and a lot of what he he thought is, is memorialized in that book.
1: Can you tell us a bit more about your father? I know he was an outspoken anti-income tax advocate, and I I know he's currently in jail on charges related to that advocacy. Could you tell that a little bit for people that aren't familiar with his case?
0: Yeah, he's still very outspoken, even though, you know, his voice is being confined by the prison walls. Right. But he's talking to any of the other inmates or any of the guards that are there about, you know, the government and how they're illegally extorting uh, taxes from the American public but you know in his research you know on economics he kind of went down this path about taxes because he always believed that the income tax was very destructive to the United States economically as an economist he knew it was a very dangerous damaging tax and a lot of the problems he saw in the US economy back then you know the income tax was was to blame so he never liked the tax as an economist but he didn't really know anything about it legally or constitutionally but as he began to learn and read, you know, he discovered on his own that the laws were in fact being enforced illegally by the government and he really began a crusade to try to end the income tax or force the government to abide by the Internal Revenue Code, uh, by the Constitution, by numerous Supreme Court decisions which as far as he was concerned, the government was collecting the income tax in violation of those. And so, you know, he's been fighting it all his life and unfortunately, you know, he's been in jail several times, I think mainly because he can't get a fair trial in a U.S. court. You know, they just want to put him in jail just the way any corrupt government would lock up a political dissident. So I look at my father as a political prisoner rather than somebody who's in jail because they broke the law. My father's in jail because his ideas represent a threat to the government breaking the law.
1: Sure. And perhaps he did violate certain tax codes, but I'm sure there are many people that have violated similar tax codes that have not faced the kind of sentence that, uh, that Erwin oh. Schiff has faced
0: as well. Oh, look, my dad's in jail now for a 13 year sentence. He's wow. 86 years old. He's still in jail. Uh, you know, the amount of money that he actually is accused of evading in taxes is very, very small. I mean, the vast majority of what they claim he owes is the interest in penalties, not the actual tax amount, the dollar amount is quite small. I mean, I pay more taxes personally every year than my father was accused of evading during, you know, the entire period of five years or so that he's in jail for. In fact, you know, on a multiple I pay. But, you know, there are plenty of people who have been convicted of evading millions and millions of dollars of taxes that they owed, right, or they believe that they owed, forgetting about interest and penalties, who don't even go to jail at all or who serve you know, six months, a year. I mean, my father is spending more time behind bars than your typical, you know, second degree murderer would spend or...
1: Oh, he served more time than the Wolf of Wall Street, didn't he? I mean, even guys that get made
0: movies made about them. Far more. And, and, you know, uh, the Wolf of Wall Street stole tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, my father didn't steal anything as far as he was concerned because he didn't believe he was breaking the law. And, you know, there are a lot of people that think that they owe an income tax. Let's say you believe that you owe... $5 Five million dollars in taxes, and you cheat, right? You underreport your income, you inflate your deductions, and, and so instead of paying five million, you end up paying three million, right you believe, and so you basically cheated and you, you held on to two million that you thought you owed, but you didn't want to pay it, right. My dad didn't think he owed anything, and he told the government when he filed his return, I'm not paying anything, and here's why. And so my father didn't try to hide anything. He didn't try to get away with anything. He was very forthright with the government as to why he wasn't paying the income tax. So there was no fraud involved. I mean, he was very sincere and upfront in his beliefs, whereas, you know, the typical tax evader, you know, is acting in a way that he thinks he owes a tax, but he's trying to hide that from the government. He's committing fraud. But my father didn't commit any fraud. He said, I don't owe any taxes. Here's my legal basis for that. Here's the Supreme Court cases I'm relying on. Here's the, you know, and this is why I'm not paying, you know.
1: And sadly, it's his forthrightness with his beliefs that yeah. actually and, is why did him in jail.
0: And even if he would have paid his taxes, I mean, it wasn't like he was making lots of money. I mean, so maybe his taxes would have been 30000 $50,000. You know, I mean, it wasn't you're not talking about some enormous sum of money that he didn't pay. Now, with taxes and and interest going back 20 or 30 years, you know, you don't pay the government $50,000 in taxes. 20 years later, you owe them like a million, Wow, (laughs) you know, but this because it all compounds. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah.
1: Now, what's he supposed to get out of jail, by the way? I think it's fairly in the next couple of years. Is that right?
0: Yeah, I think in a few more years, theoretically, I mean, there's no good time. And the judge even stuck an extra year on for contempt charges. Wow. No, for his trial. He was his own lawyer. The big problem was his his hearing aids weren't working, so he really couldn't hear much of what the judge was saying. And so maybe the judge interpreted that as him just, you know, being belligerent, but he really couldn't hear what anybody was saying. He couldn't even hear the closing arguments because he I mean, they could have at least gotten him a battery for his hearing aid amazing. Well,
1: we certainly wish him the best and, and hope he gets out sometime soon. And uh, we can certainly see where you got a lot of your fire reviews then, then uh, started originating. Now, you first caught my eye and, and the eyes of many, I think, especially in the libertarian movement from the viral Peter Schiff was right video, which spread around online like wildfire after the 2008 financial crisis. This video, I just rewatched it a few minutes ago, shows clips of you being laughed at by all sorts of mainstream talking financial heads at the mere suggestion that you were making that things might not be so rosy with the economy at the time. And this, most of these appearances were in 2006, 2007, before people were really, you know, realizing that a crash was coming. So why don't you just tell us, you know, why exactly were you so right? And why did so many get it so wrong? It's just hilarious kind of watching this back because these guys are literally laughing like little schoolgirls at you and obviously they look so foolish right now.
0: Well, you know, for the same reason, they've got it wrong again. You know, the, all the people that thought the economy was in great shape in 2007, 2008, 2006, whenever I was going on these TV shows, all those people believe the economy is in great shape now. All the problems that they didn't see, that they didn't recognize before the financial crisis, they think those problems have been solved. But because they never understood the problems in the first place, they don't understand that, that what the Federal Reserve has done didn't solve any of the problems. It made all the problems worse. And so the problems are now looming larger than ever before. And I think we're staring at an even greater financial crisis than the one that we experienced in 2008. And fewer people can see it because they still don't understand it. And this time, it could end up being a currency crisis where it's a collapse in the dollar, not just a collapse in the housing market and and the stock market.
1: Well, sure. And you've you've kind of achieved the nickname of Dr. Doom for always calling for disaster and saying that the economy is, you call it the real crash that's ahead. And so how do you see that playing out? Do you really see the currency itself collapsing? Or or how do you see this playing out in the next few years?
0: Yeah, I do see the currency collapsing. I mean, the currency has been rising recently because of all this false optimism, the the, the false belief that the Fed has created a a legitimate recovery. And because of that, the Fed could raise rates. Well, they haven't created a recovery. They've blown a huge bubble. This is the biggest bubble yet. And they can't raise rates or they'll prick the bubble. In fact, by not doing quantitative easing, I think – The bubble is going to deflate on its own. So I think the Fed is going to have to launch another QE program before the end of 2015. Otherwise, you know, we're going to be in a bear market in stocks. The housing market's going to fall and we're going to be back in a recession.
1: So do you see the Federal Reserve as the main source of the economic problems in our economy or are there other factors such as the debt, inflation? Obviously, inflation is a result of the Fed's policies, taxes. What do you see as the key?
0: Yeah, I think the Fed is, is the main culprit because the debts are also the fault of the Fed. Because if the Fed wasn't monetizing all of these debts, the government could afford to run these big deficits. So if the Fed was truly the independent agency it was designed to be, then the government would be a lot smaller. Because it wouldn't be able to borrow enough money to fund these deficits at a market rate of interest. But because the Fed has been monetizing all the debt... The governments have no market pressures to shrink the debt. And so the government keeps growing. And as much as I'd like to just blame the politicians, I think that more of the blame is on the Fed as the enablers of all the bad actions, you know, uh, that the politicians are making, that they just want to get elected. FOMC members aren't up for election. So what's their excuse? Why can't they just do the right thing? You know, it's kind of like if a kindergarten teacher leaves the classroom and then, you know, the, the, the six year olds destroy the place. Who am I going to blame? Am I going to blame it on the, the six year olds or on the adult teacher that shouldn't <laughs> have left the, the room? Right. So these politicians are going to do whatever it takes to get elected and they'll borrow as much money as they can to do it. And if the Fed makes it easier, well, they'll keep doing it. So I think the Fed is is our big culprit. And I also think that the Supreme Court, you know, because I think a lot of the government spending a lot of these programs are unconstitutional, yet our justices allow the government to get away with it. I mean, that's what they're there for. Again, the justices aren't up for election. You know, they can, they can do the right thing. They don't have to worry about the polls. They're there for life. So why can't they enforce the Constitution and strike down all these unconstitutional programs where the government is doing things that they have no constitutional authority to do? So I think we've been failed more by our judges and by our central bankers than by our elected officials who, after all, you know. They're just trying to get elected. You know, they don't give a damn about anything.
1: Well, you talk about doing the right thing and, you know, how the Fed should do the right thing. So I'm curious what you think the, the quote unquote right thing is for the Fed to do, other than maybe just abolish itself or what have you. But <laughs> but I mean, what, what exactly should the Federal Reserve do in your view to
0: try to, I don't know, make things better? Take away that punch bowl. You know, they never should have inflated the housing bubble. They should have allowed a deeper recession in 2001, 2002. They never should have had the easy monetary policy they did in the late 1990s. And if they didn't do that, they wouldn't have inflated the dot-com bubble. And they shouldn't have come to the rescue in 2008 when their housing bubble burst. You know, they keep lighting fires and then putting them out, but they put them out with gasoline so they come back bigger. And so now we're facing a bigger disaster than the last one because the Fed didn't allow the market to function. We need to swallow the bitter-tasting medicine that is required to really heal so that we can build a recovery on a firm foundation of savings and capital investment and production, as opposed to engineering a bubble, which is all we have now. And these phony financial bubble economies where you goose the stock market and the bond market and the real estate market, it doesn't benefit the economy. The average person gets poorer as the cost of living goes up and the standard of living goes down. And we just, you know, layer the economy with more debt.
1: Now, Peter, you often speak against a lot of a lot of the common American dream uh, type tropes out there that, you know, that everyone should go to college, that everyone should buy a house and that kind of thing. So, I mean, let's just start with the college thing. I know this is a big thing you talk about, the college bubble. Why exactly should people, I guess, at least think twice before going to college, before getting into, I guess, massive debt? It seems very difficult to go to college nowadays. I know my dad put himself basically through college through ratzi and through paying as he went but that's pretty much impossible nowadays so what is the real source of the college bubble and this whole problem
0: well look anything the government gets involved in it's going to screw it up right education healthcare housing right when the government subsidizes something it's going to make it more expensive and less valuable i mean that's and that's what they've done with college a college degree has never been more expensive than it is right now, but never been less valuable to have because now everybody goes to college. And so what's a college degree worth? Nothing. I mean, at one point in time, maybe one in 10, one in 20 Americans went on to college. And and so the degree actually meant something. But now, you know, it's no big deal. But it cost a fortune because of all the government guaranteed loans. If the government didn't guarantee these loans, nobody could afford to go to college and then colleges would have to slash their tuitions. But because the government pays the cost, then the colleges keep jacking up the tuition. And meanwhile, so now you've got a lot of, uh, you know, 20 something year olds that can't get jobs that are 30, 40, 50, 100,000 in debt. They majored in some liberal art degree, they sociology or philosophy or whatever. So they don't know anything. They have no real marketable skills or work experience. Yet they have a bunch of debt. And so now they have to go live with their parents. In fact, I just read an article in the Wall Street Journal a couple of days ago that mentioned that people under 30 who have a stake in a private business, right, either they started their own business or they are a part owner of a private business. The percentage of people 30 and under who have an ownership interest in a business just hit a 24 year low. Wow. So despite the fact that, you know, you got all these social media dot com type startups, Young American entrepreneurship is on the decline. Why are so few Americans starting businesses? Because they're broke. They, they waste all their years, their youth in college. They graduate knowing nothing. And they have all this debt. You can't start a business when you're in debt. You know, you, you have to get a job when you're in debt because you need to pay off your bill. The way you start a business. See, I started my business. And the reason I was able to start it because I lost money for the first few years is because I had savings. Right, and one of the reasons I had savings is because I didn't have any college loans to pay off when I graduated. But now you got people graduating all this debt; they have no prayer of starting a business. Meanwhile, you know you got people going to college, and a very substantial percentage of people going to college, they just get you know jobs that you could get without a high school degree. You don't even need you know they're, they're waiting tables, tending bar driving a taxi cab, you know, working as an orderly, as a cashier, stock person. I mean, you know, you got plenty of people with college degrees. You know, they used to say that you, know, you better go to college, otherwise you're going to end up serving French fries. Now the idea is, well, you need a college degree to get a job serving French fries. Because, you know, so the, the government has destroyed the whole thing. That's why you know, you've got now this big push to try to increase the minimum wage because you've got so many people now, even with advanced degrees, you know, it's, if you have time to check out this video I did, it's funny, I, I recorded this video a couple of years ago when I was in New Orleans for a conference and I'm walking on Bourbon Street yeah, I've seen this one. <laughs> and I'm interviewing people, asking them, you know, where you went to college and what your debts are. But they're all these are all, you know, the barkers at the strip clubs and the bartenders and the pedicab drivers. I mean, everybody is doing a menial job and they've all got degrees. Some of them have two degrees, master's degrees. But if you just Google you go on my website, at Peter Schiff College or just Google Peter Schiff College, it'll, it'll come right up and, you know, you, you can watch it it's about a five, six minute video.
1: So what would you say to someone that's you know a junior, a senior in high school today? Would you just tell them not to go to college straight up or what would your advice be to someone like that based on, you know, your view of what a college degree has really become?
0: It depends on really what they're they want to do. And if they're very academically inclined, I mean, if they're, you know, straight A students, they got high scores on their SATs and, you know, if they want a certain kind of profession, then I'm not going to tell you not to go to Harvard or Yale and Princeton or some of these schools. But, you know, if you're a C student and you really don't know what you want to do, I mean, it'd be a complete waste of money and time to just enroll in some college and study, you know, sociology of sports, get a job work, get some experience. If it turns out that you need a degree, you can always go back to college when you know what you want to do. But most likely you won't need a degree. And four years of work experience will probably be a lot more valuable than four years or five or six years of, you know, partying at a college. And certainly, you know, Computers and there, there are a lot of companies now, if even in technology. You know, they're hiring people that don't go to college that just know how to program or things like that. There's a lot of stuff that you can learn. A lot of courses, things you can do online to increase your marketable skills. Right? It, just because you graduate from a college and that, and you've been there for four or five or six years doesn't mean anything. And people, you know, you cram for these exams. I can't even remember most of the things that I actually learned. Whatever I learned in college, I forgot by the time I graduated. So what did the experience actually do for me? Nothing. I mean, I don't think that I benefited at all from my college degree looking at my work experience. But again, you want to be a doctor? You're going to have to go to college. I mean, that's the way it is, you know. But these people, again, who are driving taxi cabs for a living, why did they go to college? It was a complete waste of time. And, and now they're driving taxi cabs with a lot of loans to repay, You know, you might as well drive without the loans and maybe, you know, without the loans, maybe you can start your own business. I mean, it's it's just going to be a big obstacle. Now, if you get a scholarship, if you're that bright a kid and you get a and you get an academic free ride. okay, you know, but most people don't fit into that. you got people that barely got out of high school, C and D students who are going to college and taking remedial coursework. Right. I mean, if you couldn't learn basic math and English by the time you graduate 12th grade, forget it. It's not for you. You know, academics is not your thing. Maybe you're creative. Maybe you got some artistic talent. And, you know, you could be a good businessman and not necessarily be that book smart. So, you know, your life isn't over if you don't go to college. But now a lot of people's lives are over because they did go to college because now there's so much in talk. you know. I mean, especially too now young people, it's almost more embarrassing than telling your partner you have herpes or something <laughs> to have to reveal how much college debt you have. You know, some guy meets a girl with one hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of college loans. Does he want to marry her? I mean, it's mm. like, oh, hey, back off, man. I can't I can't take on that. responsibility. probably don't want to <laughs> sign on to that now. <laughs> no. So it's like it's like the, it's like another secret that you're carrying around. I mean, people have, you know, their 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 college debt. And then what if you got two people? What if they both got six figure loans? How could they possibly marry each other?
1: Uh, Peter, this is something I, th- I think about a lot because I you know, I have a freelance career in television production out here in Los Angeles, and I, I did study some TV stuff in college. and I learned a little bit, but I- I'd say probably seventy or eighty percent of my courses were unrelated to that. They were just courses I kind of had to take. I took some art courses, I took some some gym classes. I mean, I took a volleyball class. Stuff that I mean, great, but I can play volleyball. I don't need to pay thousands of dollars to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, I- it-, it seems like I ha- you have to take so many classes unrelated to what you even do. And you know, I have a p- pretty decent going career. I'd say out here doing what I'm doing but at the same time I work with a lot of people and I'd say about half the people I work with have degrees went and learned about television production in college about the other half never went to college they just started working and they learned the same exact skills that I have on the job just through experience and in some ways maybe they had a head start on me because they were working while I was busy like you said partying and and taking classes that I maybe I didn't really need to take so there's something you touched on before when you said you know if you want to be a doctor you have to go to college and you have to go to medical school and that's certainly true Don't you think that's part of the problem, too, is the kind of cartelization of the education industry, where if you're going to provide medical services to somebody, you have to go through these accredited universities?
0: Yeah. You know, at one time, nobody went to law school. Right. I mean, Patrick Henry didn't go to law school. Right. There were plenty of lawyers, great lawyers who didn't go to law school. I mean, all this stuff happened, you know, this cartelization of industries. You have people in industry. And they want government protection from competition. And so you have all these requirements and things like that. And, and yeah, you know, I don't think you necessarily should have to go to medical school, and accredited medical school. You, you know, you might be able to learn how to be a doctor just working with a doctor and not necessarily learn it in an environment of a accredited college. But, you know. That's kind of the way it's evolved right now. You know, you're not going to get associated with a hospital, and with now all the malpractice and all the lawsuits. I mean, there's no way that you're going to be able to be a doctor unless you have a medical degree. There's not that many other professions that are like that. I mean, there's some professions that you need to go to college, but most professions you don't. And what I even tell young people: look, if there's a company that you want to work for, a good company, and you're out of high school, I would just go to a company and say, "Look, I'll work for nothing." You know. It's better than paying, you know, find a company where you can intern. The problem is now people are, are afraid to hire interns because now you can go back and sue them, you know, for for minimum wage. So go offer to work for minimum wage. Go find a company where they're hiring college grads, where they're giving college grads, you know, maybe 40, 50 thousand a year and say, look, I'll do the job for minimum wage. So what? I went to high school, but big deal. I mean, you know, you get me on the cheap. Why hire a college grad? I'll work for, you know, minimum wage. I can probably do the job just as good. And, you know, working for a company for a few years at minimum wage, you know, now after a few years, now you're in much better position. You're you're much more valuable to that company. You know, a lot more from on the job training. And now by the time you are 22 years old, you might be able to get a lot more than a college grad with no experience. Meanwhile, you didn't have to pay any bills. You didn't have to pay any tuition. You didn't have to accumulate any debt. You know, I think the people that don't go to college end up having a big advantage in the job market because they can work for less money because you can get the jobs when you're younger and you don't have any debt. And then, you know, when you're 22, 23, I mean, you know, when you're 18, you can live with your parents. You know, you got young kids now, they're 18, they're 19, and they go off to college, they live in the dorms, they live off campus, they spend a bunch of money. And then when they graduate, they're 23, 24, they're broke they come back and live at their house, and now they're stuck in their parents' house until they're in their 30s. I say when you graduate high school, don't leave home. Stay with your parents for a few years. Go get a job at minimum wage from a good company. Learn something, and then when you're 22 years old, you can move out for good. You can make enough money because now you have some real marketable skills and some real job experience, and you don't have any loans
1: what about housing? I know it's still kind of a, a part of that American dream that you sort of everyone needs to buy a house. Even my father, who's a big fan of yours by the way, he lives in Connecticut, he was a big supporter of your Senate run there back in 2010, but even my father to this day will be like, hey when are you going to buy a house? Are you saving to buy a house? And I'm just thinking, well, I mean, I live in Los Angeles, <laughs> I look at the house prices out here, it just seems absolutely insane to me to invest, to make that kind of large investment just to quote unquote own a house whereas I know a lot of people that own a house, but but they are always complaining about having no money because they're busy paying this huge mortgage every month. And, you know, God forbid something happens with their financial situation. I'm afraid of being in a situation where I I can't actually pay that mortgage next month or something like that.
0: Yeah, I mean, homeownership is not an investment. It's an expense. And if you buy a house, it's going to cost you a lot more money than renting. Now, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't buy a house if you need one and you want one, but you just better be prepared to pay for it. But when people say you need to buy a house as some kind of asset, no, you don't. Let's say if you buy a house and your mortgage payment and your taxes and property you know, it would be $2,000 a month. But instead, you can rent something for $1,000 a month, right? What you do is you take that $1,000 a month that you're not spending on property taxes and mortgages and invest it, you know, it, and then build a portfolio, you know, build wealth that way, invest the money that you don't waste on or spend On home ownership, if you just spend all your money, right, the whole idea is, well, if I don't buy a house, it's like forced savings, right, on building equity in that house as opposed to blowing all my money. But if you have some discipline and just take the money you save by renting and don't just blow it, invest it, and then you'll end up with a lot more money than if you just go buy a house. But, you know, if you need a house, if you're married, if you have kids, if you want to live in a certain neighborhood, well, there's, you know, but, but make sure you have enough money to afford a house because houses are expensive. Lots of things wear out. Lots of things break down. There's all kinds of expenditures that come up and you can go bankrupt. I mean, houses can be real money pits. And especially you've got lots of Americans who barely have any savings. They scrape together a 3% down payment on some FHA loan and then they buy a house. But if, you know, the pipes leak, I mean, they're done. They don't have any money. You know, at one point, people thought that housing prices only go up. They don't. They go down, too, and they can go down a lot. You know, and we've seen that. And in fact, I think prices are about to go down again. Peter, I've got just a couple more questions. But first, I want to take a minute to tell
1: everyone about our sponsor, My Academy of Health Excellence, and their amazing product, Health Excellence Select. Now, until last year, I was just like you guys. I saw my health insurance costs double and my deductibles skyrocket thanks to the Obamacare health insurance mandates. Determined not to participate in this corporatist scheme, I sought an alternative and found out about health sharing, a fantastic concept in which your monthly fees go directly to pay the medical bills of others, not into the pockets of some crony capitalist fat cat. Health Excellence Select combines health sharing with a patient care personal assistant, 24-7 phone access to board-certified physicians and discounts on dental, vision, and other benefits. The best part is that for most people, plans with Health Excellence Select are much more affordable than Obamacare insurance, and it meets the legal mandate, so you will not be fined for using it in lieu of insurance. For more information, head on over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. Now, Peter, just to shift gears for a moment. I know you've also been a big critic of Bitcoin, and this is something that uh, a lot of libertarians are raving about. I see a lot of people saying this is the future of money. I've had a couple of guests on the show talking about it. Trace Meyer, I know you're familiar with him. So what is your biggest criticism of Bitcoin, and why do you dispute the notion that cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoins are, are really the future of money?
0: Because it's not money. I mean, the basic idea of money, money has to be a commodity that's desired Itself, right? You have to be a valuable commodity before you can become money, right? Now, not all commodities are suitable as money, but lots of things have been used as money, right? The the Indians used seashells, wampum. You know, they used cigarettes as money. Cigarettes function as money among GIs, you know, in Europe after World War II. But why were cigarettes money? Because you could smoke them. Even if you didn't smoke cigarettes yourself, you knew somebody who did. And so, The cigarettes could serve as money because they had an actual value, an actual use, apart from using them as as money. Bitcoins don't have that. Bitcoins came into existence specifically to be traded, but they have no use apart from that function, which means they can't store value, which means you have no idea. Would you put your life savings in bitcoins? I sure wouldn't. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, because what if they're worth nothing? So they can't be money because they can't store value, because they have no value to store. So it's not going to work. Yes, it it is very efficient to transport it, and it is highly divisible, and, and, and it does have a lot of the properties that made gold function as money as opposed to something else, right? I mean, you know, why aren't cattle money? Why isn't oil money? Because it's not as convenient and as easy to use. I mean, if I borrow a cow from you and I pay you back in five years, I mean, what if the cow I give you isn't as nice as the cow you loan me? And how do I pay interest? I mean, what, I could give you baby cows? So you can't. But gold works. Now, Bitcoins have replicated a lot of the properties of gold, except the most important one, which is the value of gold. Now, the Bitcoin community say, oh, this is nonsense. There's no such thing as intrinsic value. Yeah, tell that to your girlfriend. Give her a necklace. Give her,
1: give her a Bitcoin ring, right?
0: <laughs> Whatever, yeah. You know, I mean, but but also gold is used in industry. I mean, gold is in cell phones. It's in it, it's in dentistry. It's in uh, it's in medicine. It's in aerospace. You know, there are things you can do with gold. It's not just about trading it, right? There's real value there. So Bitcoin doesn't have that. But the people in the in the libertarian community, I think, got so blinded by the idea of it. Hey, we can get out from under the central bankers and not have inflation and But it doesn't work. Their judgment was clouded by the money, the allure, because when Bitcoin was going up in price, all the people who had adopted early were getting rich and many of them are still rich and they're hoping to get a lot richer if everybody else adopts it. So they're kind of they're stuck in this thing. They're in this bubble and they can't see straight because their judgment is clouded by their own greed and their own enthusiasm for what they're doing. Uh, but when I first started speaking out against Bitcoin, it was about thousand dollars a coin, eight, nine hundred, a thousand. You know, that's when I started getting into arguments. I never really talked about it uh, when it was five, ten dollars, a hundred dollars, because very few people knew about it back then. But ever since I've been talking about it, you know, my warnings have saved people a lot of money because bitcoins are under three hundred. They're at two seventy, two eighty a coin, and uh, so if you bought bitcoins a year ago, you're you've lost three quarters of your money, your purchasing power, and. Who knows what bitcoins will be worth a year from now? I think they'll be lower than they are now. They might be a lot lower. They might be half again what they are now. So and, and eventually I think it collapses. And I think all of these digital currencies are going to be a fad. Now maybe they'll be replaced by something better. Maybe we'll have digital currencies backed by gold or silver or something else. And and there it works. And you can actually have a digital currency backed by oil, you know, because you don't actually have to carry the oil around. You just have to store it somewhere. But it's a lot cheaper to store gold. But people could have digital currencies backed by any commodity they want. You've got to back it by something real. It has to have value. But what the people in the Bitcoin community say, well, that's the flaw, because now you have to depend on some third party to actually store the value. They say, well, if the digital currency is backed by gold, what if some government comes in and steals the gold? Well, now it's not there anymore. Well, that's the risk. But they say, well, in Bitcoin, you don't have to worry about that. Yes, you don't have to worry about it because there's no value to steal, because Bitcoin has no value in the first place. It's almost like the ultimate fiat because it's all based on confidence. It only has value if people agree it has value. But if they don't want it, it's worthless. Now, people say that about gold. Well, gold is only valuable if people think it has value. No, gold has real value. It's been valued and desired for 5,000 years. Why would it stop? You know, we don't have to worry about people not wanting gold. They've always wanted gold because of the properties that gold possesses. Did people want Bitcoins 10 years ago? No. You know, and will anybody want them 10 years from now? Probably not. They want them now only because they think they might go up in price. But that's that's now that's that's a bubble.
1: Do you foresee Bitcoin just going to zero, going away completely? I mean, is that is that your prediction that you would give?
0: Yeah. You know, I don't know if there's some way, if there's some ability to utilize the payment network. Uh But but ultimately, if the coins themselves don't have any value and if the value of the coin drops so dramatically, there's no market there. I mean, it, it, you know, if bitcoins go back to, you know, a, a dollar a piece or 50 cents a piece, there's not enough of them to really finance any kind of commerce because they don't have they don't confer enough value. But I mean, maybe the network that they're building up, maybe this Bitcoin network, this, maybe it will have some value. I don't know. And maybe there'll be something else that will come up that will give it value. But certainly in its present form, there's no way it's going to work. And people that are sitting on, you know, huge paper profits and bitcoins, my advice has been and is to sell. But the only problem is I know that if you sell, somebody else is going to buy. And that means whatever whatever loss you avoid, you're inflicting the pain on somebody else, right? Because there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be caught holding the bag When when this thing collapses and the people that made money. And this is always the case on any kind of Ponzi scheme or pyramid. There are some people who make money. There are people that bought bitcoins when they were giving them away. They were mining them when they were very cheap to mine. And they've cashed out and they sold their bitcoins at, you know, $100, $200, $500, $1,000. And they bought houses and cars and trips to the moon and stuff like that. So you have all these very early adopters who have gained but all of those gains are going to come at the expense of a much larger population of people who lose those gains, You know what other people gained.
1: Now, Peter, I always like to ask my guests for a book recommendation. So if someone's listening to this interview today, kind of is interested in what you're saying, and besides your own books, which of course we'll promote. But do you have a, one book you could recommend to people who are interested in learning more about finance, about money, from, from sort of the, the point of view that you take?
0: Yeah, well, of the newer books that are out there, The Death of Money, Jim Rickards, is a really good book to read. I mean, Jim and I share a lot of the same philosophies, and his book, you know, just came out, and so it's a good read. But, yeah, all my books, certainly the revised version of The Real Crash, that's my most recent one. And, yeah, my, my dad's book, too, The Biggest Con, if, the, if we still have copies left, you know. <laughs> But yeah. but I have another book that he wrote that's a cartoon book. I wrote one, too, How an Economy Grows and Why It Crashes. But I have one of my dad's earlier cartoon books, The Kingdom of Malts, and that's a short read. It's very funny and it's a very good explanation of inflation and money. And I have plenty of copies of Kingdom of Malts if people want to get those. So you can also see those on the shift books on my, you know, my bookstore.
1: Great. Well, we'll link to all that stuff in our show notes. And and Peter, I really do appreciate you coming on the show today. One more question I want to ask you. Like I mentioned before, you did run for Senate back in two thousand and ten. My dad was a big a big supporter of yours over in Connecticut. Um, do you plan on running for political office again?
0: I don't plan on it. You know, it doesn't mean I it doesn't mean I won't do it. But I certainly have no plan on doing it, and I doubt I'll do it in the immediate future. But you know, I'm still fifty two. I mean, could I run for something? You know, in my 60s or 70s, yeah, you never know. But I don't have any immediate plans to run for any office.
1: Right. Well, Peter, again, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate your perspective. I know it's, it's refreshing to hear other voices out there that aren't You know, just the same talking heads, the same Krugmans of the world out there repeating the same mantras we've heard our whole life. So it's really refreshing to get a different view on things. And, you know, before I let you go, why don't you just give everyone the roundup of, you know, where they can find your show, where they can get in touch with your financial companies. And feel free to plug anything else you've got in the works.
0: Oh, sure. Well, you know, I don't do the daily radio show anymore. I just didn't have time in the day to do that. I did it for four years. But I do a podcast on the same website, shiftradio.com. You can listen to my podcast or you can, you know, download them on iTunes or any place they have podcasts. So I do these, you know, I put out a few a week. I also do YouTube videos on my YouTube channel, Shift Reports. So if you're not currently a subscriber to my YouTube channel, subscribe to that. And, you know, when I do things like that college video that I pointed out, we always upload them to the YouTube channel. So if you're a subscriber, you'll know when I do those. My gold company for people who are interested in buying physical precious metals, which I would recommend, shiftgold.com. We have among the lowest prices anywhere online. You know, we don't pressure people into overpriced coins. We don't deal the numismatics, just low markup bullion coins. It's the way to go. That's why I set up the company shiftgold.com. And my brokerage firm for people who have more money to invest, if you want us to help you build a portfolio of foreign stocks and bonds, companies that will benefit from the economy as I see it unfolding. You can check us out. Europac.net is the website, E-U-R-O-P-A-C.net, and the phone number 800-727-7922 to talk specifically with a broker at Euro Pacific Capital. And again, yeah, all my books are available on the Shift Radio website. You can also, you know, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, I put out a bunch of tweets today. You know, I usually tweet out a lot of the economic data, put out, put my spin on it. So yeah, I, I have a lot of social media ways that you know I'm out there and you know my companies. Well, Peter, thanks
1: again for coming to the show. I really did enjoy our conversation, and best of the luck with everything you're doing. Uh, you too. Take care, Peter. All right, take care, Mark. We'll be back after little break. Hey guys, Mark Claire here, lionsofliberty.com, where we strive to advance the ideas of Liberty Daily. We bring you The Morning Roar! That's right, every Monday to Friday we'll have a brand new edition of The Morning Roar, where we provide a roundup of some news stories that you may not find in the mainstream media, or even in your typical social media news feed. We find stories that relate to the ideas of liberty and provide you with our liberty perspective on them. We wrap it all up every Friday with Felony Friday, where our own John Odermatt goes out and takes a look at some sort of felony. There's felonies committed every day, you know, whether it's a felony committed by the police, a politician, or even an average citizen. You can find all of this and so much more over at LinesOfLiberty.com, advancing the ideas of liberty daily.
0: This is Glenn Jacobs and you're listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Your shining beacon of liberty. Mark Claire. Alright folks,
1: I hope you enjoyed my interview with Peter Schiff, certainly a guy I have been following for some time, and I got to say I really appreciated hearing more about Peter's father, Irwin Schiff, and I've heard countless interviews with Peter Schiff over the years about the economy, about finance, about investing. But I hadn't really heard him speak extensively about his father, Erwin Schiff, a very well-known anti-income tax advocate. And it's really interesting that Peter referred to him as a political prisoner. And, you know, you can argue that Erwin Schiff did break the law. You know, maybe he did not pay the taxes that our system and our courts claim that he owes. But the severity of his punishment is clearly way out of line with that of others who might not have the same outspoken political beliefs that go along with their transgressions. Well, like we mentioned, the Wolf of Wall Street. This guy's out there giving speeches, hanging out with Leonardo DiCaprio, and he committed criminal acts. He defrauded people of their money. He actually had malintent, whereas Erwin Schiff, he just was stating his beliefs. He truly believed the only people he was robbing was the U.S. government. <laughs> now, look, many people believe that his tax money is the rightful property of the U.S. government. That's why Erwin Schiff is ultimately in jail. Because we live in a society where people think you should be coerced into paying taxes that you never consented to. I don't like to harp on taxes that much. It's not the biggest problem in our society. You know, a lot of the functions that government does, policing, protecting rights. Now, we can argue they don't do it very well. <laughs> and that they violate way more rights than they protect, and I'm with you guys there. But the point is, these the services government should provide. The, the things that people expect from government to protect your life, your liberty, and your property. These things cost money, and they need to be funded. I mean, in whatever forms our society takes, there will be methods by which people fund these things, okay? So I don't like to harp on, you know, the amount of taxes. It's more the system that we have, and the system that we have is a reflection of the people in our society. Even many libertarians think we need a minarchist government Now, we can go into all sorts of theories about what government should and shouldn't be, but the minarchist argument is just that we should have, you know, a little bit of coercion, a little bit of violence that we can justify. When you agree to that little bit of violence, that little bit of coercion, well, that's when you get, you know, 70- and 80-year-old men that get stuffed in a jail cell for 13 years for their political beliefs. While the Wolf of Wall Street, parades around Hollywood with Leonardo DiCaprio, the priorities are really a problem. but it's a reflection of our society. Irwin Schiff didn't consent to the income tax and he stood up for what he believed are his rights and he's paying a price for that. But that's largely because our society includes a lot of people that think he should pay that price. And frankly, that's the biggest problem we have. That people view, view how to fund things as something that should be done through violence. And that it can be enforced through violence. Now this goes way back. And and I'm not saying we shouldn't have structures. We shouldn't have, you know, systems by which we protect the rights of others. But it can't be a system where we force people into it. Where we have fiat land grabs. Where we have a government that just says, everybody in this geography is under our system. If you're born here, even if you leave, we're going to come after you for your money. Well, that's not right. That's not a moral system. it's not a moral way to go about things. And yeah, I agree with people that say, well, this isn't going to change overnight. No, it's not. That's why I do a twice a week podcast. <laughs> We're going to change it over the course of time, folks. We're going to change it by changing the attitudes of people towards each other. How and when should violence be used in our society? I don't know. I don't think throwing Irwin Schiff in jail is really a good way to use violence in our society. What do you guys think? Join our conversation. Come over to our social media. Tell me why I'm wrong. Tell me why I'm right. That'd be cool, too. Facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty. Find us on Twitter at Lions of Liberty. You can drop me an email. Mark, M-A-R-C. M-A-R-C, Mark Lions of Join the conversation, and we'll keep this conversation going, because that's that's what I intend this to be. I'm not just trying to dictate the way the world should be. I want to have a conversation with everyone out there listening. That's how we're going to change things, through conversations, by talking to each other, by talking to our friends, by talking to our family, by talking to... People on the other end of our, of our podcasts and our blogs and all the, the different ways we can produce media for people to consume. That's how we're going to change things, guys. And I'm glad. I'm really, really grateful to all the subscribers out there, all the people that have been consistently listening to the show. You're the reason that I come back to this microphone a couple times a week to put this show out. And I'm going to keep doing it as long as you guys keep coming back. That's the, that's the deal I'm going to make with you guys. How's that sound? And next week, well, I'm going to keep doing it. I got a couple more interesting guests next week. First, we're going to speak with James Carley of the Drug Policy Alliance, a great organization that has been really working behind the scenes and in front of the scenes with a lot of uh, PR stuff and that kind of thing, but really doing great work on the war on drugs and rolling that back. They were a big part of a lot of the recent drug legalization laws we've seen across the country, and I'm really looking forward to talking about that organization. And then on Thursday, I'll be speaking with a gentleman by the name of Rayford Davis a former police officer who is now a libertarian and a very outspoken advocate against the war on drugs, the war on guns, and, you know, a lot of the ways that our current policing systems take place. So I'm really looking forward to next week's interviews. I hope you guys are, too. And until next week, the only thing I ask of you guys is to live long and live free. Woo. Last week, John Roberts.